Hello, and welcome to the Eclectic Vanguard. With me, Michael Brown. This is, of course, Radiolab 97.1 FM. Hello everybody, welcome to the show. I hope you are having a nice evening today. And today we're going to be doing something a little bit different. I did actually have a uh, an interview lined up for this week, but uh, I changed my mind based on the fact that uh, somebody pointed out that the Oscars are of course coming up. They will be uh, only a few days, uh, I believe they're this Sunday, so only a few days from when this is going up. And obviously around uh, New Year's, I for, for the New Year's Eve special in fact, I reviewed the the best films, the top 10 best films of the decade, in my opinion. And I figured, seeing as I have that precedent, perhaps I could review almost every single film nominated in any Oscar category for this coming Oscars, the 93rd uh, Academy Awards show. Now, I say almost because I have not watched all of the films in the best animated picture category and the best foreign language uh, picture category. And therefore, I decided to just exclude those categories. And the first thing I wanted to do is blast through uh, quite a substantial list of films nominated in, in categories that I understand to be not really reflecting the overall quality of the film. And uh, I think you'll see what I mean as I get into these these films and what it is they are nominated in. Quite simply, films where you look at the category that they're nominated in and you think, oh, well, you know, actually they, they could win that category, never mind being nominated. But that doesn't necessarily mean that they are overall good films. Now, when I'm reviewing these films, I'll just give a very quick word on them and also give them a uh, out of 10 rating. I have tried to order them a bit such that uh, similar categories are together and also that it's ordered from uh, what I would understand to be categories that I think are perhaps less important towards categories that are a bit more important. So with that said, uh, let's jump in. So the first film nominated for best original score is The Five Bloods by Spike Lee. This is a film about four uh, Vietnam veterans who have returned to Vietnam in the modern day to retrieve some gold that they found during the, the Vietnam War. Uh, it is basically an action film. When I was going into it, I was actually thinking it would be more of kind of a, an emotional drama, but it's uh, definitely towards the end becomes uh, an action film, unambiguously. Now, obviously, being directed by Spike Lee, it also does uh, delve into racial politics a lot. For example, one of the uh, characters is a, a Trump supporter. You know, of course, Trump did get a large amount of support from many uh, black people in the United States. Uh, also, I think it has a familiar trope of Spike Lee films, which is just having these what feel like sort of obligatory uh, references to the uh, black experience of the United States and United States history, where you'll just have characters randomly uh, referencing key moments in black history, uh, as if every single um, African American is just constantly walking around viewing themselves, you know, not as an individual. I think it's it's a bit silly, and it's something which to me always makes Spike Lee's uh, characters feel less like characters and more just like kind of political uh, talking points, really. And, and I do find that disappointing. And I, I've liked some of Spike Lee's films before, but I think Spike Lee is at his best when he is uh, working on films that deal much more directly with racial politics in such a way that he can actually 
allow uh, these comments he wants to make and this this commentary he wants to have come across without feeling incredibly forced. When you're watching a film that's supposed to be about, you know, these people going to rescue their friend's remains and pick up some money, uh, and they're constantly just talking about racial politics, uh, it does come across to me as just a little unrealistic and uh, silly. So overall, it's still an entertaining film, just that bit holds it back, and I'd uh, give it a 6 out of 10, uh, and a quite low 6 out of 10. Now next up we've got Love and Monsters, directed by Michael Matthews, which is, has been nominated for Best Visual Effects. It's set in a future, a post-apocalyptic future, where giant uh, amphibians and reptiles and insects have taken over the world. And the main thing I want to say is that this film feels incredibly derivative of uh, Zombieland. Uh, there are so many similarities, but principally in terms of the tone, the idea of having basically a post-apocalyptic film, which is also kind of a, a teen drama. This also comes across to me as feeling a bit like a, a tamer, more neutered version of Zombieland, because uh, while Zombieland, of course, had zombies, and it did actually have some uh, genuine uh, sense of peril, uh, this film just having like giant bugs and uh, and giant toads and things like that, it, it comes across as... Uh, a lot more kid-friendly, uh, a lot less uh, interesting and exciting. And also, I just think the, the characters are incredibly flat, and the, the morality in play is incredibly flat, and the plot progression is incredibly flat. It just, none of it is particularly interesting. But having said that, it is it is obviously competent, and there is some sense of excitement that comes from having basically a film about a guy walking across a post-apocalyptic wasteland fighting monsters, you know, giant uh, monsters. Uh, but it doesn't bring much to the table, so uh, I'm ranking this a 4 out of 10. Next up, there's The Midnight Sky, directed by George Clooney and starring George Clooney. Uh, this is again uh, post-apocalyptic. Uh, it tells the story of a guy who is stuck, left to navigate uh, a ship that is returning to Earth, and there's uh, a bit of a debate about whether or not they even want to come back to Earth, considering it's not a particularly nice place anymore. Admittedly, you know, I'm, I'm struggling to explain the plot, and that's because this film does feel like it doesn't really have a plot. I, I think one of the issues with it is it lacks the kind of personal aspect that would come from having the film be centered on one particular person, you know, because you could have a film that would feel very kind of deep and personal about the experience of George Clooney being uh, basically abandoned on this cold, desolate station and, you know, not having anybody around him. But the problem is the the scene-to-scene uh, -scene editing basically makes it so that you never really get a sense of either character's isolation because from your perspective watching the film it's like you're seeing both of these people in pretty much equal measure you know it doesn't really give you that sense of isolation it doesn't really communicate how these characters will be feeling because you're constantly cutting between them you're constantly seeing what they're both doing and it makes it feel as if you know they're essentially you know they're together they're in the same movie you're watching them together so you never really feel that sense of isolation for any of the characters and to me that just means that the uh, what the film's principally trying to communicate falls pretty flat obviously it was nominated for visual effects and i think sure you know the the space scenes are kind of visually impressive and you might get something out of that uh ultimately it's there's not really much there so yes four out of ten next there's uh, mulan so this is a a remake of the Disney classic, which is of course based on the old uh, Chinese legend. This is directed by Nikki Caro, and it was nominated for Best Visual Effects and Best Costume Design. Obviously, uh, I, like almost everybody who has any sense of quality, does not like the current Disney remake thing. I think it is just cheap and exploitative 
and just designed to cash in on nostalgia without bringing any original ideas to the table. However, having said that, I naively thought to myself, well, you know, Mulan, it's a it's an action film. It's obviously about fighting. It's about war. Because obviously the, the issue with the original Disney film is it doesn't really feel like a war. You know, Disney does not make war epics. Uh, and therefore, you know, if you've ever seen the original film, uh, a lot of the battles aren't really solved by lots of people killing each other and things like that and hacking at each other. Uh, they're solved by, you know, twists in the plot, which is fine. I have no issue with that. But of course, it's because uh, the, these are basically children's films. You don't want to have lots of people uh, hacking each other to bits in them. Uh, unfortunately, this film I thought would be a bit more adult. And I thought, therefore, it might have that bigger sense of scale, those those battles where there's actually a sense of uh, people dying. But then what the Disney film has, which makes it good, is the uh, intimacy and the sense of actually knowing Mulan and relating to her. And there isn't that charm of the kind of 2D animation you get. So it, it just feels like generic female heroine uh, goes on a boring adventure. And uh, I should also clarify that uh, the, the animal sidekick, obviously in the original film, you have Eddie Murphy playing a, a dragon who of course serves as comic relief. That's completely gone. You don't want that in your serious live action film. Uh, and of course, that's fine. I can understand why you wouldn't want that. But if you're not going to have it, replace it with something. Unfortunately, this film feels just scaled back with nothing actually to, to compensate for that. And with that said, I mean, uh, I'm giving it a 3 out of 10. And I would probably say a low 3 out of 10. Next up, we have Pinocchio, directed by Matteo Garone. It was nominated for Best Costume, Makeup, and Hairstyling. When, when I went into this, I was actually thinking it was another live-action Disney remake. And uh, then people started speaking Italian. It's just a an original Italian film retelling the Pinocchio story. When I realized this, I was like, oh, this makes me a bit more optimistic. I thought, well, this original Italian retelling of the story must come from a, a place of basically creativity. And uh, I, I think maybe it did. Unfortunately, I think it was perhaps, let's say, misdirected uh, creativity. This film felt like a mess, uh, honestly. It, it felt very confused and, and there were some strange decisions made. For example, you, you had uh, Jiminy Cricket there. But he was kind of just a, a character who showed up intermittently rather than somebody who was actually, you know, showing up regularly and having a real kind of chemistry with Pinocchio. Uh, you also had things like, for example, they, they kind of set up his nose growing when he lies in one scene and then it never comes up again, which is very strange. And also there, there is some strange moral confusion in the film where we're told that Pinocchio is, is you know, misbehaving and that this is a bad thing. And yet... At several points, because the, the fairy herself is uh, portrayed as a child, her and Pinocchio go out and do mischievous things, and it's presented as uh, not a problem at all. It's presented as just these two children kind of bonding, even though they're actually they're playing pranks, they're doing things which uh, cause issues for other people, and yet the film acts as if this isn't an issue. So even as a basic morality tale, uh, I, I don't really get what the film is going for. And also, perhaps most bizarrely, in, in this film, all of the puppets are sentient, which is just, it's very weird because they even set up like the idea that the uh, the log that Pinocchio is carved from is a magical log. And yet then he goes to basically a, a puppet circus, you know, like the Italian version of a Punch and Judy show, I guess. And uh, the weird thing is in, in this version, he goes there and all of the puppets are sentient. And you think to yourself, so what was the point in the idea that he's kind of magical? It doesn't seem like he's magical at all. It seems like this is just a world where puppets can walk and talk and move around. Uh, so very confusing. It's, it's not a bad film. It, it's not terribly made. 
uh, and it's kind of entertaining, but it's just like every single decision made in terms of the, the world building and also the kind of point of the film, uh, ethically speaking, just feels like confused. That's the best way I could describe it. And therefore, uh, again, I'm giving it a four out of 10. I'd probably say this time it's actually a high four, but yeah, uh, very confusing. <laughs> Next up, we have Emma, uh, directed by Autumn DeWild, nominated for Best Costume, Makeup, and Hairstyling. This is, of course, uh, a period drama based on the, the novel by Jane Austen. And I could say a lot about this film, but the main thing I want to say is communication is key. Because if you don't know the plot of Emma, basically Emma is a matchmaker. That, that's her thing. She tries to get different people to come together. You know, she tries to get her friends to court, uh, as, as they would have said, uh, her male friends. And it, it's, you know, fun in a way. But the problem is the, the drama comes from the fact that she is constantly misunderstanding and making uh, very faulty assumptions about who it is that her friends want to be with. So, at s several points in the film, she is trying to set up these relationships, be this matchmaker, and then suddenly it turns out that actually she's misunderstood what it is uh, that her friend wants, or indeed what it is that one of the men she's trying to set them up with wants. Then obviously that's where the kind of interpersonal drama comes from. But it's just very difficult to take it seriously. Like even later on in the film, after this kind of matchmaking has become a uh, mismatchmaking, uh, several times now, she's still hearing people like talk ambiguously about who it is they want to be in a relationship with. Like you'll have a scene where there's like two men and a woman says, I really fancy him. And she just assumes which man it is that they must be referring to. And, and you think to yourself, you've been through this several times. Just make sure before you try to set her up with somebody that you've clarified who it is that she's actually talking about. But no, she again tries to set her friend up with the wrong man and oh dear, look at that, what what fun, what interpersonal drama, didn't she make a mistake? And it's just like, it's very difficult to take seriously when uh, the uh, tension in a plot and the ultimate kind of progression of the plot comes not from any sort of uh, logic, but just from the characters behaving in a way that is frankly uh, stupid. And I'm sorry to be mean to Jane Austen, but uh, yeah, it's just, it's not a very interesting story to me. And for that reason, uh, I gave this film a 5 out of 10. Hello guys, just dropping in to let you know this is the Eclectic Vanguard with me on Radio Lab 97.1 FM. And this week I am reviewing all of the films uh, nominated for Oscars in uh, this forthcoming Academy Awards. Next up, we have Tenet, directed by Christopher Nolan, nominated for Best Production Design and Visual Effects. Uh, this film, like a lot of Christopher Nolan's films, is basically just, uh, oh, look, lots of weird things happen. It's the, the plot is that some people have the ability to travel back in time, even while, and, and while they're traveling back in time, they are interacting with people who are traveling forward in time. And and as a result of that, you, you do get some kind of funky, almost uh, Matrix style, like uh, Kung Fu, pretty much, where it's like people are fighting each other, but they're sort of fighting in reverse. And it's like you get scenes where there are these people who are fighting in reverse against somebody who is fighting forwards. And that is, you know, that's an interesting thing to, to look at. But obviously the, the main thing is you get scenes where earlier on something happens which doesn't make sense and then later on you get characters going back in time and then crossing over with their past selves uh, and you go oh that's why that happened you know it's kind of a standard thing to do in a time travel plot uh, but yeah the the main issue for me with this film is that one it wasn't always clear to me how the rules worked like it, it was good and I could just about kind of get it but it was just like 
I, I find a lot of the time, if you're going to introduce this weird kind of element to your, your world building, you need to actually establish what the, the limitations are and what the ideas are so that when you're, you're watching it happen, you can actually go, oh, okay, yeah, yeah, I can see that it makes sense they do that. Whereas what happens a lot of times is just like, oh, I guess they can do that because you don't know what the rules are until they start doing it, which I think is disappointing. And the other aspect is the motivation is is a bit strange. And I, I thought the motivation was like that we right now are causing uh, harm to the planet, which will eventually cause people in the future to to suffer. And that's why people in the future are coming back in time to kind of interfere with our world now to correct that. But then that's not related to the uh, central kind of bad guys motivation. And I thought that was strange. You know, there, there is a reference where they say, oh, you know, uh, we, we've destroyed the environment in the future. Somebody says that, but it doesn't seem like they're saying that as if it's central to the plot, which I found disappointing because I thought, actually, that seems like it would be a, a good point of kind of central conflict. So I'm pretty much just saying, based on my experience of going, oh, that's interesting, uh, I'm going to give this film a 6 out of 10, but I think it's going to be a low 6 out of 10. Next up, we have Greyhound, directed by Aaron Schneider, nominated for Best Sound. The main thing about it is it's starring Tom Hanks. Uh, basically, everybody loves Tom Hanks. He's been in so many classic films. He just seems like such a nice guy that you find out Tom Hanks is in a film. You go, oh, I'd like to watch Tom Hanks. And in this case, it's Tom Hanks uh, playing a, a captain who is escorting a convoy across the Atlantic during World War II. And that's it, basically. There's not much to it other than that. As you can imagine, they get attacked by German U-boats. As you can imagine, they get fired at. Uh, they have moments where people die. They have moments where things go mechanically wrong with their ship because they're being attacked. Obviously, it then leads to a point where they're you know surrounded or there's like different uh, ships converging on them and they're like oh no and then they've got to shoot one of the ships and oh they oh they're gonna they're gonna miss no oh, they got it yeah uh, and then obviously oh but now now there's the other ship and then you know something shows up at the end of the day to to save them it's it's, it's that it's it's a war movie uh you you can pretty much i mean that's not spoilers that's literally just exactly what it would obviously be you know it's it's not it's not a boring film ultimately it is just a quite a generic film and you know the, the main thing as far as i'm concerned is oh look you get to watch tom hanks who everybody loves you know because he's just like a really nice guy who you know is really charismatic play a character in this uh, otherwise generic war movie uh so yeah i i just i'm gonna say that's a five out of ten i don't think it's got anything special about it to elevate it to a six i don't think it's got anything uh bad about it to bring it down to a four so yeah five out of ten for greyhound now, next up, there's a News of the World, uh, directed by Paul Greengrass, nominated for Best Cinematography. I think it was nominated for some other things too, but Best Cinematography is the thing I think is most important. Uh, and this film also stars Tom Hanks, and it's a much more Tom Hanksy role. He plays uh, somebody in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War, who travels from town to town in Texas reading the news. The main plot point is that it's uh, around the time when the uh, Union government is sending... Native Americans off to reservations, basically kicking them off their land, and also coming across many uh, children who have been captured by Native Americans. And these children are basically now being relocated back to uh, white families, to their closest relatives, basically. And uh, the story basically begins with Tom Hanks discovering that something's gone wrong, and one of the children who was supposed to be being escorted back to her family has, in fact, uh, gone missing. So he has to rescue her and then take her back to her family himself. And on the way they bond, on the way, as you can imagine, it being the Wild West, they encounter some wild things. They encounter some bandits who, you know, want to attack them. Uh, they encounter some 
weird communities where, uh, let's say, people are hostile to outsiders. The kind of thing you can imagine happening in uh, immediately post-Civil War Texas. For me, the, the main positives are, first of all, the cinematography. Uh, this is the first film uh, on you know so far that I've mentioned that has been nominated for cinematography, and it, it does look nice. And also the fact that you do actually feel the kind of relationship between Tom Hanks and this girl who he's rescuing. Like I say, Tom Hanks, everybody likes him. He is a nice guy. So who wouldn't want to see a film where Tom Hanks assumes this basically paternal role and along the way ends up being just a, you know, a little bit of an action hero? It very much relies on, on that kind of charisma and also that chemistry. Uh, but I do think it, it works. Having said that, you know, apart from that, it doesn't bring much to the table. And therefore, uh, I was deliberating between a, a six and a seven, and I decided on a very low seven because, you know, I love Tom Hanks. Now, next up uh, is Hillbilly Elegy, directed by Ron Howard, which was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for Glenn Close. Yes, we're getting into the uh, actress and actor uh, nominees now. And Hillbilly Elegy is a bad film. Uh, there we go. It, it's based on a uh, book by a guy called J.D. Vance. J.D. Vance is a uh, American arch conservative. He is uh, somebody who is a enthusiastic supporter of Donald Trump. And it's showing how he came from a poor community, but he, through you know hard work, was able to become successful. Uh, but the, the way it communicates that is basically by having him abandon his, his family who has all of these problems, uh, which is not a particularly nice message to have. For me, the biggest issue actually with this film, I don't mind films with conservative messages. Uh, in fact, I, I welcome films with conservative messages. There are so many films with liberal, kind of leftist messages out there. I say, you know, let's have more films with conservative messages too. The, the problem with this film, actually, in my opinion, is that the message is uh, not really communicated clearly. The message is principally in subtext. And to be honest, if you watch this film without knowing who J.D. Vance is, you probably won't come out of this film feeling like it's a particularly conservative film. You'll probably come out of this film feeling like it's a very boring film. The film just dispassionately tells you the story of this guy's life, and there's no real kind of plot to it. There aren't really any particularly interesting ups and downs. You know, like there's a few deaths of family members and things like that. But but we've all experienced, you know, deaths of family members. Uh, and it certainly doesn't justify making a film about our lives just based on that alone. It's a story of this guy's life. And this guy's life is not particularly interesting, which I would say is not a, a good uh, inspiration for making a film. So with that said, uh, I'm going to give it a, a 1 out of 10. And the specific reason why it's a 1 out of 10 uh, is because it's not just boring, but it's annoying to me that I feel, and I don't like the fact that it's kind of insidious to me, that this uh, right-wing message is is obviously there, because it's obvious that this guy who is a prominent conservative uh, is, you know, made this film to basically say, yes, you know, if, if you come from a poor background, you should just work hard and then you'll become rich. Uh, it's obvious he did that, but he didn't even have the integrity to properly communicate in the film and, and properly uh, explore that in the film. He just kind of has it communicated through subtext and then you're just left with what is ultimately a boring film apart from that. So yeah, one out of 10, not good. Next up, there's Pieces of a Woman directed by Cornell Madruxo uh, with a Best Actress nomination for Vanessa Kirby. And this film is, is okay. It's basically about uh, a couple who uh, they have a miscarriage and they have to deal with the emotional fallout with that. 
The the main kind of message uh, and theme this film deals with is this idea that when a woman has a miscarriage, she is in some way responsible for that. Basically, the the plot is really that uh, this woman has a miscarriage and she just wants to forget about it. But uh, several people around her want her to sue the midwife. Uh, and the reason they want her to do that it is not for the money uh, and it's not really for a meaningful sense of justice. It's because by doing that, they can prove that it was the midwife's fault rather than uh, the main character's fault. I think it's interesting, especially when you look at the increasing restrictions regarding abortion in the United States. There are many states which uh, are basically trying to restrict access to abortion. And one of the, the things that people point out there is that when you say that abortion is illegal, you can create a situation where if a uh, child in the womb dies, somebody has to be considered responsible. The, the mother might come under fire. Uh, or else the midwife might come under fire. And it basically shows how when you have this this culture where uh, miscarriage is not understood as a tragedy, but rather as a, a crime, basically, as something that somebody is responsible for and somebody has to pay for, it just creates a needless conflict. And I, I think that's a good message, and I think it's a, a relevant message uh, in, in our society. The, the only issue is that I think sometimes with, with messages, you've got to be very careful to make sure your characters remain relatable rather than just becoming one-dimensional kind of um, talking pieces for uh, different points of view. Uh, and unfortunately, I think in this film, the characters do become quite unrelatable. You know, the, the mother in particular of the, the woman who has the miscarriage is, is quite unrelatable. I think that the uh, Shia LaBeouf's character, who is her, her boyfriend, he is... Uh, completely unsympathetic to her even even at the beginning you know never mind like showing how the eventual toll of a miscarriage can cause issues for a relationship it's like as soon as it happens he's already incredibly unsympathetic and i i just think you know obviously there are unrelatable people who exist but when you want to tell a story that people are going to get invested in uh, i think it's important to have slightly more nuanced characters and slightly more relatable characters uh, and I, I think that did hold it back you know it does have an interesting message but you you shouldn't let your message uh, take you away from the fact that you're trying to tell a story. And for that reason, I, I'm going to give this film a 6 out of 10, but a high 6 because I do appreciate that message and I do appreciate the fact it clearly is trying to say something. Next up, we have The United States vs. Billie Holiday, directed by Lee Daniels with a Best Actress nomination for Andra Day, who plays the titular Billie Holiday. Uh, I will say this, if you like your, your jazz... Uh, if you like Billie Holiday especially, you will at least enjoy the fact that you get to listen to the songs that Billie Holiday sung. However, you can also achieve that exact same result by just listening to, you know, a best of Billie Holiday uh, CD. So regarding this as an actual film uh, rather than a soundtrack, it does have some positives, most significantly the fact that it really does get to the fact that the uh, United States government hated Billie Holiday and hated the fact that she was bringing attention to systemic injustice against African Americans. And, you know, I, I think it's worth having films that do uh, stress that darker side of American history. You know, I, I think that's a valuable thing for films to touch on. The way they go after Billie Holiday is by tackling her drug addiction. And obviously that's how the United States is able to take her on. 
not by actually you know arresting her for what she said because that would you know go against the first amendment but by tackling her for her uh, drug issues and yet it, it it would seem like that leaves the door so open for some thematic explorations of one you know the idea of uh, criminalizing drug use rather than treating it as as a medical health issue you know as something which should be treated medically rather than uh, treated as a crime it also leaves the door open for a kind of you know ethical look into the responsibility of people who champion certain causes to themselves be morally upright you know and and i think that's something which the film could have looked into a lot more and uh, of course i think it could also get down to the fact that historically yes the the prohibition of drugs in the united states has we know as a matter of public record been uh, principally about uh, interfering with and giving legitimacy to to actions designed to interfere with uh, black organization, organization uh, around you know black power and black nationalism uh, and even just basic black rights in the United States. And that's something which, again, you would think could be touched on in a more meaningful way. And yet the film uh, does fall short in all of those cases. And I think the big issue is that once you uh, don't have any of those themes, the only thing you're left with is the plot. And the plot is just quite a boring uh, account of Billie Holiday's life. Uh, there isn't really much there apart from that it's just you know it's functionally equivalent to reading the uh biography part of uh billy holiday's wikipedia page and i just think that was quite disappointing that they had an opportunity to do much more of this uh, and they didn't take that opportunity now having said that andrew day's performance is is good uh she does come across as similar to billy holiday uh however uh, obviously a performance doesn't mean much unless it's about a, a very good story or at least communicating a very interesting message and i feel like this film fell short in that regard so i would say this film is a, a four out of ten i'd probably say a high four uh, but yeah a, a bit disappointing hey guys just letting you know that this is the eclectic vanguard with me michael brown and uh, if you've just joined us i have been reviewing all of the films nominated for uh, oscars in this year's academy awards next up is uh, ma rainey's black bottom directed by george c wolf uh, this got a Best Actor nomination for Chadwick Boseman and a Best Actress nomination for Viola Davis. Uh, and I'm just going to say that I found the performances and the uh, dialogue in this film to be immensely disappointing, uh, mostly because of the the way this film tries to juggle a sort of levity with a serious discussion about racism in the United States. And particularly because you have the fact that you will have these characters joking and, and laughing with each other and then suddenly it will go serious and one of them will talk about, you know, something they saw, you know, a, a lynching, uh, something like that. But every single time that the tr transition happens, it feels so forced and, and so uh, just unconvincing that you'll get a character who goes from laughing and joking and then suddenly they'll just start talking about something horrible and, and traumatic that they witness relating to, you know, systemic racism in the United States. And it just, it never lands for me. And that's not a good thing. Uh, now, having said that, and I do appreciate the fact that, uh, you know, it is very dialogue heavy. And considering that it doesn't uh, feel slow or anything like that, you know, it, it, it is quite fast paced for a film where basically nothing happens apart from just a bunch of people talk. And the funny thing is when they're not kind of trying to force in this uh, really what feels like quite a, a false sense of melancholy 
uh, and you know mel- melodrama with these uh, you know uh, recounting of all these horrible things that have happened in the past when they're just acting like real normal people uh, the film is actually quite good it's just unfortunate that every single time it tries to be serious it, it tries to do it in a way where it feels less like the actual characters are communicating in an organic way and just like the film is saying okay they've got to be serious now uh, and yeah I think that's unfortunate but overall I still would give it a, a 6 out of 10 but yeah a, a bit disappointing but still interesting so that is all the films that were nominated for Oscars which in my opinion don't really relate to the overall quality of the film but uh, next we're going to get into uh, three films which were nominated for uh, Oscars which in my opinion do relate to the quality of the film but are not best picture Oscars and those are uh, the uh, best adapted and best original screenplay uh, Oscars so and in this case they're all best adapted screenplay you know if the screenplay is good the film should be good you're not nominating a film for best screenplay if the film is complete rubbish so with that said uh here are the three films first of all white tiger directed by ramin barani it deals a lot with the caste system and in particular the the way that uh people who who grow up in a caste system genuinely internalize that system and at several points you know the the character will be talking about how for him the, the idea of existing within the caste system, the idea of living in complete servitude to a, another group of people simply because of the circumstances of how he was born makes complete sense to him and is something he perceives to be the right way the world should be. And, you know, it is powerful to have that idea explored of a caste system where you are just told, based on, again, the circumstances of your birth, this is your place in society and you should not imagine or, or want to uh, advance above that. That is uh, powerful. The problem is that, like I say, he says it. Uh, And that's not terrible in itself, but the problem is every single time the film touches on this theme, it only touches on it through the character just coming out and explicitly saying it. You know, the character just will come out and make very obvious, just say to the audience. A lot of the time, it will be through voiceover, narration. He will just say, you know, this this is how I felt growing up uh, in India under a caste system. And it's like, you're making a film Uh, not a lecture you actually have to communicate this through the story itself and unfortunately the story itself is just not particularly impressive you know it's uh feels quite discount slumdog millionaire i'm afraid to say because even though uh, it is about kind of the caste system and the rigidity of the caste system it is actually a story of social mobility uh but overall it just like i don't get particularly invested in the plot because there's just not much excitement to it and i think part of that comes from the fact that the character for most of the film genuinely doesn't want to advance and seems to end up pretty much climbing up the you know uh, social totem pole accidentally uh, which just means that you don't really get invested in the goal of him doing so and when it happens and he does end up kind of uh rising to the top you're like oh okay that's interesting i guess that's going to happen uh but you're, you're not really invested in it and you don't really feel it emotionally because uh the film isn't really about that and unfortunately what the film is about this you know uh caste system aspect of indian society is something which is only ever really communicated like i say quite uh, unambitiously through simply telling the audience um what the film is trying to say and i just think that's not particularly creative so unfortunately uh, this film is a, a five out of ten as far as i'm concerned Next up, we have Borat, subsequent movie film. This is, of course, the sequel to the you know original Borat. And I would just say I thoroughly enjoy the original Borat. I think it is a fantastic comedy film that incorporates you know all sorts of different aspects of comedy, from social commentary to kind of gross-out, cringe humor comedy to, of course, you know uh, the, the hidden camera prank show aspect of comedy. Uh, and I think it does it so well and integrates it so well. However, this film has a, a problem which it admits right away, which is that uh, everybody now knows who Borat is. 
So this film inescapably can't deliver on that hidden camera uh, prank show aspect that it had in the past, because now everybody knows who Borat is and you can't prank somebody by making them meet this, you know, crazy Kazakhstani person and think they're a real person. And this film tries to get around that by having Borat uh, dress up in disguise. But the problem is, uh, Sasha Baron Cohen is a fantastic character actor, but Borat isn't. So the problem is, when Borat dresses up like a, a Texan cowboy, he can't be a convincing Texan cowboy. He has to be a uh, Kazakhstani person pretending to be a, uh, a Texan cowboy. And the problem is, at that point, you can't do what Borat was able to do, which is make people think they're speaking to uh, an actual person with no subterfuge and make them reveal completely ridiculous things. And there are moments in this film where, just as in the original Borat, people do come out and say some absolutely insane things and do some absolutely insane things and things which you get the impression they wouldn't ever do uh, in public. But because they presumably believe they're speaking to you know somebody who is not going to have a significant wide reach, they feel comfortable saying these things. The issue is there's always that sense of they, they must know that something's up here. You know, this this is it, the Borat. I think the original was too big for its own good. And the reality is now you can't quite believe that these people are, are genuinely being serious when they're saying these ridiculous things in interviews and things like that. And while I think this film, you know, it, it does touch on some interesting uh, kind of political aspects and some political commentary, especially since obviously this was filmed while Donald Trump was still in charge. And also it touches on the, the coronavirus it doesn't do any better than the original film on any of these points. And I think in some areas, it does substantially worse, particularly the, the hidden camera aspect and the sort of cringe humor aspect, because there is that sense of, you know, people must realize at this point who Borat is, and therefore, you know, they, they must actually be aware of the fact that this could be not a real person, but rather just a prank show. Uh, so unfortunately, with that said, uh, this is only going to be a 6 out of 10 for me, but I did still find it quite funny, and I would possibly even say a, a high 6 out of 10. And finally, we have One Night in Miami, directed by Regina King, and this film basically tells the story of uh, Malcolm X, Cassius Clay, Jim Brown, and Sam Cooke meeting in a hotel room uh, to basically discuss the politics of, of being African-American. The film principally centers around uh, Cassius Clay's decision to change his name to Cassius X and come out as a, a member of the Nation of Islam, while also touching on Malcolm X's uh, desire to leave the Nation of Islam because he believes it has now become uh, corrupt and wants to move on to different things. Uh, it, it does basically cover uh, the conflict that each of these men were going through, presumably uh, around this point in time. And the film does ultimately end with some big character moments for all four of the uh, principal men involved in it. Uh, regarding the actual kind of uh, politics of it, uh, I just thought it was fine. I don't think the film said anything massively interesting. Uh, but what I think really made this film work is that you do feel like you're watching these actual men have a conversation. You know, it, it does feel very real, very organic. Uh, and it doesn't come across as at all stilted. It doesn't come across as at all forced. Uh, it feels like these are actual people talking. And I, I'm, I think it's unfortunate that in so many uh, films, especially films that try to say something about these, these kind of social issues, they get so wrapped up in kind of saying the right thing, I suppose, that they no longer care that when the characters are saying these things, it actually sounds like they are characters saying these things. Instead, it just comes across as the film trying to communicate a message. Uh, but in this case, it didn't. It came across as actual human beings talking and deliberating and disagreeing. And uh, that should be something which is considered quite standard, but it's not. Uh, and for that reason, I would give this film a, a low 7 out of 10. 
Now, before getting on to the Best Picture nominees, of which there are eight, uh, I did just want to say I was very disappointed with the uh, Oscars or the Oscar nominees this year because I, I noticed there are so few films that deal in a good way with themes and kind of uh, messages. And you look to, for example, last year, the Best Picture winner was Parasite. And Parasite is a film which uh, deals with the class divides in South Korean society. It deals with the, the kind of social experience of capitalism, basically. And it does it in a way where that is what the film is unambiguously about. And you can watch the film, and you can get that message from it, and you can actually absorb a lot of what the film is saying and think, how do you understand that? What does it mean to you? When these things happen, what do you understand that to be saying about the socioeconomic system that the South Koreans live in? And what do you uh, take from that and apply to your own life? And to me, that is something which good films should do. A good film can transform you by actually changing the way you look at reality itself, by introducing new ideas to you and introducing them to you in a way which isn't just, you know, a, a textbook or a lecture or something like that, introducing it to you as a story uh, through art. And that's something which I think good films do. And yet it is something which I have not seen from any of the films nominated for Oscars this year. But with all that said, let's jump into the Best Picture nominees. And in this case, I have uh, ordered it in a slightly interesting way. I've basically put the kind of uh, central film first, and then I'm going to alternate going kind of backwards and forwards. So uh, our last two films will be what I consider to be the worst film nominated for Best Picture and the best film nominated for Best Picture. We're going to start off with the film which I consider to be right down the middle, and that is Nomadland, directed by Chloe Zhao. Nomadland uh, tells the story of a woman who lives in a van and travels around after her, you know, where she used to live basically becomes a ghost town because the local industry shuts down. It, it does have a, a character aspect to, to it of this character experiencing, uh, you know, the, the reality of being a nomad. And it certainly does have very nice cinematography and it is a nice film to look at. Unfortunately, uh, I didn't get the impression this film was trying to say anything, and I was particularly disappointed because for a minute, uh, she she does, at some point in the film, settle down on a farm. And for a minute, I thought to myself, oh, this is going to be, it's kind of a parallel to human existence, you know. She starts off as a nomad, and then she settles in a farm, and I thought, you know, maybe next she's going to kind of settle in a city, you know, to reflect the, the human uh, idea of, you know, you start off as a nomad, then we settled when there was the foundation of agriculture, and then eventually we became more urbanized. And I thought, oh, you know, maybe it's going to be a kind of a clever artistic exploration of human history itself and the the uh, psychological uh, impact on society at large of how our history developed. But no, uh, the reality is I was wrong. I think the fact she went from being a nomad to living on a farm is just completely coincidental and doesn't exist to actually say anything at all meaningful, uh, which was really disappointing. Uh, but yeah, so with that said, uh, it's still a nice looking film. It still has that kind of uh, intimacy that comes from, you know, Frances McDormand's great performance and the performance of all the people she's around. And it does feel more like a documentary, honestly, than a film. But honestly, the fact it feels like a documentary is a bit disappointing because I wanted it to be a film that was going to kind of use a script and uh, use themes to say something. Whereas in reality, it just felt like a film that was dispassionately documenting somebody's life. And that's fine as a slice of life thing, but it just wasn't saying that much. So for that reason, uh, I would say a 6 out of 10. Hey guys, this is Michael Brown on the Eclectic Vanguard, Radio 1197.1 FM. And this week, if you've just joined us, I have been uh, looking at and reviewing all of the films that have been nominated for Oscars in this year's Academy Awards. 
Next up is Judas and the Black Messiah, directed by Shaka King. This film tells the story of uh, Fred Hampton, the uh, chairman of the Black Panther Party. The Black Panther Party was a uh, Marxist Maoist uh, black power organization in the United States that was being infiltrated by the FBI. You know, the, the main positive for me is that uh, I think it does get to the the fact that this struggle for you know black power has been a, a messy thing. And, you know, it's not necessarily been 100% simple and clear. And it doesn't uh, present too many people as over-the-top villains. You know, there are some people who do kind of function as over-the-top villains. But a lot of the people in this film do seem to have this this idea of uh, conflict. This understanding that there aren't really, like, easy answers and easy lines that can be drawn between uh, good and bad in, in a situation. And I, I did really appreciate that. And I also think that uh, Daniel Kilua playing Fred Hampton is a, a very... Uh, interesting character. He, you know, is very charismatic, and I, I do think you kind of get to know him and become very fond of him. And you know, I really kind of appreciated that. You know, I like when I'm watching a film, and I care about the people in, involved in it. And I also think that apart from anything else, this film will serve as a, a useful history lesson. You know, if you don't know about this period in time, if you don't know about the relationship between the FBI and the Black Panthers, then you know, this film basically can uh, serve to educate you on that fact while also entertaining you. And I think that's a, a good thing. I think the film tells a very interesting story in a quite interesting way. And yeah, for that reason, I think it deserves a 7 out of 10. Next up is uh, The Trial of the Chicago 7, directed by Aaron Sorkin. This tells the story of seven men who are accused of instigating a riot at the Democratic uh, National Convention. Uh, and the context is that the Democratic National Convention, basically, or the Democratic Party, decided that they were A-OK -okay with the Vietnam War, while, of course, a lot of their supporters were not. And the result of that was uh, violence. And these uh, seven men are put on trial for the idea that they they conspired to instigate this violence, basically as an act of uh, treachery. Interestingly, this film also does feature Fred Hampton, uh, which is a curious crossover. <laughs> but unfortunately, while... Uh, the film about Fred Hampton, Judas and the Black Messiah, was a film that dealt a lot with kind of the ethical complexities of the issue. This film is very cut and dry, very down the road. Basically, the message is the, you know, uh, liberal hippies were 100% in the right and the state was 100% in the wrong. And there's not really any complexity to that. And a lot of the film is just the defendants making fun of the justice system, uh, making fun of the United States, making fun of the Democratic National uh, Party. And I don't have a problem with that, but it just gives the impression this film exists solely for people who already agree with it. That is the purpose of this film. It, it is basically pandering. And uh, I, I personally don't like that, you know, this film, because I agree in, in principle, I guess, with the politics of this film. I don't think the Vietnam War was a good thing. But to watch a film that just says, you're right, you're right about everything you believe. Uh, if you're a liberal, progressive, uh, anti-war person who's, you know, sympathetic to the social justice movements of the 1960s, you're right. And uh, you're fantastic. I just think I, I don't know who finds that interesting. I don't know who wants to just watch a film just to be told that they're right and they're correct about everything uh, and have not be challenged in any way. Uh, and that's what this film does. There's also some technical issues. The cinematography is just profoundly flat and boring. Uh, and the editing is just uh, terrible. To me, the editing comes across as like, there's, there's too many kind of big characters. So all of the Chicago 7 are kind of treated as like big characters. And the camera has to cut to all of them as they say their, their little one-liners. And it's just like the, the dialogue editing, in my opinion, is so flat. It's just like cuts to somebody, they say a thing. Cuts to somebody else, they say a thing. Uh, there's no interest to it. Uh, and the pacing just feels super off. Yeah, I, I didn't 
uh, like it. But I, I still, again, think it was an interesting kind of, a, as an educational thing, I think it works. And I also think it does have a nice kind of a, an ending, even while I do think it's pandering. I think it at least uh, has some emotional resonance, the ending. So I liked that. Uh, and with that said, I, I'd give it a 5 out of 10, which is honestly uh, quite kind. <laughs> Next, there's The uh, Sound of Metal, directed by Darius Marder. Uh, this film tells the story of a drummer played by Riz Ahmed who uh, goes deaf and he can't play the drums anymore and he needs to uh, get some surgery to deal with it. Or does he? Because uh, basically one of the, the points of the plot, and I, I guess a theme, is that he, it's not something you should try to fix. Uh, and therefore, of course, he does have a bit of a conflict uh, when it comes to the fact that he can no longer uh, hear very well to do the thing he's passionate about, but uh, also the fact that he, of course, does have to uh, abandon the principles of the people who helped him to learn to uh, kind of cope with being deaf by seeking medical intervention to get his hearing back. However, regarding the themes, there were a few moments where I felt the film could have just kind of communicated the theme a little bit more, and there were kind of scenes which I felt should have been there, which just weren't, and I, I did find that a bit frustrating. I also think the end of the film, if it's trying to say something thematic, I don't think it does a very good job at it. I'm not sure if it is. I don't want to give away the ending of the film, but uh, I just found that a bit weird. However, what I did like is the emotional performance of Riz Ahmed, the fact that you do genuinely feel his frustration and his misery at the situation he's in. Uh, so I, I like that, and I thought that was very interesting. And I also liked the you know technical aspect of how his uh, deafness was communicated. I did think that worked quite well. So with all that said, uh, for me, it's a 7 out of 10. Next up is Mank by David Fincher. This tells the story of Orson Welles and Herman Mankiewicz as they work on uh, Citizen Kane. Of course, Citizen Kane, widely considered to be one of the best films ever made, although for me, that caused uh, one of the aspects of the film I found to be quite disappointing, which is, uh, I don't know if anybody's ever seen uh, Titanic, but there's a scene in Titanic where a character says, Picasso, uh, his, his paintings look terrible, he won't amount to anything. And it's a moment where you go, ha ha ha, we know that actually Picasso is considered a great artist. So basically, it just comes across as a bit of kind of like a cheap wink wink nudge nudge, ha ha, look how silly these people are. Unfortunately, that happens quite a lot in this film. You get scenes of characters basically saying, oh, this Citizen Kane thing, it won't be very good. And it's just very kind of, ugh. Because, yeah, okay, I get it. We know that Citizen Kane is considered to be a, a fantastic film. Uh, and isn't it funny that at the time it was considered uh, that it might not be a fantastic film? But I think to me that just comes across as a, very much a case of hindsight is twenty twenty. Like, I just can't really uh, find it very interesting uh, on any level that people thought Citizen Kane wouldn't be a good film, and then it was, because, you know, does that really matter what people thought before the film came out? And so, yeah, I just didn't really appreciate that. And I, apart from that, I mean, the film does deal with some uh, kind of political aspects to do with uh, the attempted governorship of Upton Sinclair. And he was obviously a very left-wing person and he was sabotaged and uh, Mankiewicz didn't like that. Uh, you know, so there is that kind of political drama aspect to it. But overall, uh, it, it just feels like kind of disconnected from the rest of the film. Uh, there's not really a, a point of this film, which is probably not a good thing. Uh, you know, I, I was watching it, I was just thinking, I don't get why this film uh, needs to be here. It felt kind of unnecessary. It felt like a film which only existed because, oh, Citizen Kane's a you know, really famous film, so we should probably tell a story about somebody who tried to make Citizen Kane. But I kind of feel like if this film needed to exist, it would have existed already. You know, Citizen Kane's been out for a while, and nobody thought the story of how Citizen Kane was made was particularly important. And I do maintain they were kind of right. Uh, so with that said, I would give this film a 5 out of 10. It still had some moments which I found, you know, kind of impressive. It's not like a terrible story. It's by no means incompetent. But I just don't think it brings much to the table. 
Next up, we have Minari, directed by Lee Isaac Chung. This tells the story of a Korean immigrant in the United States in the 1980s who decides to start a farm to grow Korean vegetables in the hope of selling them to Korean grocery stores to be purchased by Korean immigrants. It is a story that's mostly about uh, the, the family, his family, and their kind of relationship. Uh, it does touch on religion, of course. Uh, many people in Korea are, are Christians, and the, the film touches on that. And, you know, there is kind of that element of providence, the idea of, you know, divine intervention, which I think does come into it. Uh, but also, yeah, it's about the family. There, there is very much that kind of idea of having trust and hoping that things will work out uh, in the end, because obviously, you know, it's, it's a big risk as the film makes a, a lot of uh, effort to communicate. However, mostly this is just one of those films where the, the main point is just the the characters and, and their relationship to each other. You know, the, the father and the mother and, and their kind of uh, relationship and the tensions that this whole situation puts on their marriage. Uh, also, the, the grandma and the son. And basically, the, the son uh, has some medical issues, which cause a lot of kind of tension throughout the film. But the grandma is, is kind of a bit uh, a bit weird, let's say. And uh, the son doesn't like the fact that she's not like a normal grandma. You know, she doesn't bake cookies and things like that. Uh, she's a bit strange. And ultimately, I think this film does have you know plenty of ups and downs. But I think they they work, and they work because the characters work. You know, if this if you didn't care about the characters, this film would be rubbish. But the reality is because the characters feel real, because you know you, you do kind of believe them. And to be honest, in some sense, because the film does have uh, a few things which are perhaps unnecessary, but just help to establish who these characters are. You know, they don't necessarily need to be there for the plot or anything, but they just help you to realize, you know, these characters are real people who, you know, live real lives. Thematically, there wasn't much I think this film explicitly had to say. I mean, perhaps I, I'm missing something and, you know, I might look into it and see if there is something uh, to get out of this thematically. But I do think, you know, it was still a, a very well done uh, film in terms of the uh, characters. And also, I think it, it looks very nice too. So with all that said, I'm going to give this one an, an 8 out of 10. And that is based almost entirely on the uh, strength of it emotionally. Next up, Promising Young Woman, directed by Emerald Fennell. Uh, this film feels like it should not have been nominated for Best Picture. It feels like it should be a cheap, uh, trashy, teen sex drama on Netflix. Uh, that's the best way I could describe it. It tells the story of a woman trying to get revenge after her friend was sexually assaulted. Obviously, I, I think that's a sympathetic enough goal. Uh, the problem with this film is uh, everything else. It's one of those films which takes a systemic issue and tries to reduce it down to a matter of individual responsibility. Uh, and that's that's the problem with the film. It is dealing with uh, this matter of, you know, how, yes, sexual assault survivors will often find that they are not taken seriously. The problem with the film is that it doesn't really say anything to speak to how this is a systemic problem relating to how men view women, how men are typically socialized to, to view women's bodies, uh, and also how society uh, views women. And yes, this film does touch on some uh, of the kind of tropes uh, surrounding how, you know, sexual assault survivors are often uh, delegitimized in all sorts of ways, but it doesn't actually uh, express this as an issue with society. It expresses it as an issue with the individual's uh, involved in the film. Uh, and I think that's the kind of thing which is just profoundly unhelpful. I also think it gets particularly scary uh, at some points, and I think especially when she confronts the defense lawyer uh, who, you know, defended uh, the person accused of the sexual assault, uh, because she suggests that he is in some way morally uh, wrong for fulfilling his job uh, in, in a fair justice system and giving his client uh, legal representation. 
Uh, and I just think that's very disturbing. It, it's annoying because, you know, Three Billboards Outside of Ebbing, Missouri, it was my favorite film of the decade. And that also dealt with sexual assault. And it dealt with somebody who responded to sexual assault in a way that was morally complicated. The problem is this film doesn't feel like it's trying to be morally complicated. This film feels like it's trying to be a revenge fantasy where you, you can't take revenge because you can't take revenge on a system. And, and that's the problem. Like, that's the basic problem with this film. And I just think it's it's terrible. You know, I think the themes are at best clumsy and at worst morally irresponsible. I also think this falls into the classic pitfall of the way the film tries to communicate the themes makes the characters come across as completely unrealistic. Like, every single character just exists, every single line of dialogue exists not to make people feel like real people saying real things, but just to communicate something about the point of the film. And the overall uh, plot progression is is so disappointing, and by the time it gets to the end of the film, uh, I was just like so... <laughs> uh, it, it's The end of the film is incredibly stupid and incredibly cliche, and also uh, just so filled with plot holes that it's ridiculous. Uh, so yeah, unfortunately, everything about this film is, is bad. Uh, there's very little I liked about it. I think at best I could say the performances are fine. Uh, I don't think there's anything about the directing or camera work that's particularly good. Uh, and yeah, I can't say that there's any aspect of this I, I like. And I think far from that, it's in fact perhaps counterproductive. But with that said, I mean, I don't know, I'm giving it a 3 out of 10. That almost feels too generous. But uh, I guess I'm giving it that because if you turn your brain off, I guess it does work as, like I say, a violent revenge fantasy or whatever. But as far as like a film that deserves to be nominated for Best Picture... Uh, I don't know. I think the, uh, well, I think something's wrong with the world that this film is considered a good film. And finally, we have uh, the best picture uh, of the best pictures, the one which I consider to be the best film, uh, The Father, directed by Florian uh, Zeller. This film uh, tells the story of uh, an old man played by Anthony Hopkins, and uh, it's about basically him having uh, dementia. And the thing that makes this film really good is one, the, the performances. Uh, all the performances are very good, but especially Anthony Hopkins, no surprise there. Uh, it's very emotional. You you feel uh, for him so much as he kind of is confused and uh, not understanding the situation. And also the, the way that uh, the filmmaking is used to communicate the idea of having dementia. For example, sometimes different actors will play different people. Uh, and and you you can understand the idea of like he doesn't, so he doesn't recognize people because, you know, they're different uh, actors playing them. Also, uh, and this is perhaps, in my opinion, my, my, the best one. Uh, there is a scene where uh, characters, it, it opens with characters saying a line of dialogue. And then uh, the film kind of progresses. And then it, it kind of ends up circling in on itself. So the characters end up then repeating themselves. And you, you see Anthony Hopkins kind of react as, uh, you know, confused, as of course, you know, he should be. And uh, that that moment is just, it's so well done. It's so clever that the way kind of the dialogue just works naturally. So it kind of flows, but it ends up circling back on itself. And like I say, you, you have that moment of like, hold on a minute, they're, they're repeating themselves. And obviously, as you have that moment, you then see Anthony Hopkins, but like, hold on a minute, they're repeating themselves. I, I will say for me, I enjoyed the film more because going into it, I didn't know whether or not Anthony Hopkins was actually supposed to have dementia. Uh, it's, it's not hidden that he has dementia. I'm not. This isn't like a spoiler. It's just that I personally didn't know anything about this film going into it. And for that reason, I liked it slightly more. But the film 
on you know like the plot description on wikipedia and all that kind of stuff does explicitly mention the fact he has dementia having said that i, I do think i mean i plan on watching this film again because i think it's so good and obviously when i watch it again i'll go into it uh, knowing everything and i think i'll pretty much get a very similar experience i think it was ever so slightly more interesting not knowing what was happening and then realizing oh he's got dementia because it kind of puts you in that confused headspace too but honestly i think it's equally true that I think watching it the second time, knowing up front it's supposed to be about dementia, I think there'll be even more that I'll see and I'll be able to appreciate. Uh, and I think that's really good. Uh, and I think this film's really good. And uh, I think that, you know, it's it's emotionally resonant. The filmmaking's clever. And uh, the plot is obviously, well, you know, the plot's pretty simple, but I think it's, it's a nice kind of uh, tight plot. Nothing, you know, no scene feels wasted, anything like that. So I really appreciate that. Uh, overall, it's a bit weird because it doesn't really have any themes, like, you know, apart from the, because I guess it's got themes of like aging and things like that, but it doesn't really have any kind of message it wants to say. And it's quite rare for me to say that a film that doesn't have any, any kind of themes or any message is my favorite film. So with that said, uh, I'm going to give this film a nine out of 10, but it's a very low nine out of 10. Uh, I was torn between a high eight and a low nine. Anyway, that's the end of this show. Uh, I hope you enjoyed and, uh, you know, I hope you're excited for the Oscars, I guess, and we'll see see how it all ends up. And maybe I'll do a quick thing uh, next week where I touch on, like, what was what was won and things like that and what, what I think about it. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's my opinion. So I hope you enjoy and uh, I hope that you have fun. Uh, anyway, I've been Michael Brown. This has been Eclectic Vanguard with me on Radio Lab 97.1 FM.